Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the ecology of one of the greatest conifers here in North America, the Douglas fir, Pseudosuga menziesii. Joining us to talk about this is arborist Casey Clapp. You may recognize Casey as one of the co-hosts of the wonderfully entertaining and informative podcast, Completely Arbitrary, which is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Casey is a lover of all things trees, and it was a real pleasure just to sit down and geek out about such an iconic species. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Casey Clapp. I hope you enjoy. All right, Casey Clapp, it's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to the podcast. And how about we start off with telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Well, sounds good. Thanks for having me, Matt. Happy to be here. Awesome. Let's see. So my name is Casey Clapp. I'm an arborist and I um, am based out of Portland, Oregon, and I'm now also a podcaster, it Ooh. turns out. <laughs> and yeah, thank you. Happy to join your club. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> welcome, my welcome. Uh, <laughs> happy to be here. My good friend Alex and I, we run a, a podcast called Completely Arbitrary, which is A-R-B-O-R-T-R-A-R-Y. And it's the it's it's a show that we basically talk about trees and other related topics. So we just try to uh my this was this was really my thing. I wanted to hmm. tell everyone that that like I think trees have to do with just about everything. So I tried to pitch that to Alex and he was like, okay, maybe. And then I was like, <laughs> how about we add a bunch of fun into it? And he was like, I'm in. But essentially, yeah. But what I do is I, as an arborist, work uh, with trees in the city. I work with trees in the forest and I provide any amount of different consultation. At least I, I used to do it more. Now I um, currently am an urban forester with um, nice the city of Portland. And um, essentially what I do is just make sure that we are planting trees through development and making sure that anytime there's a a new site that gets developed, I require trees to be planted. But I also go through the the process of tree protection plans and tree risk assessments and what's the best tree to plant in any given spot for whatever reason based on the tree, the spot, and the reason. Um, but then also on my, you know, the side gig, I guess, uh, which will be slowly but surely the main gig is education, mm. um, where I really love talking to people about trees. And I like going out and seeing trees, especially in my urban environment, because people don't really realize that there are trees, you know, <laughs> everywhere. It's kind of ironic, but they, it's, it's just like a blur, you know, you're walking past a crowd, you never pick out one face. And <laughs> what I think it is with people and trees, if yeah. they don't really focus on it. Well, plants, you know, 
more broadly. Um, but essentially, yeah, so we started a podcast and um, are kind of transitioning more towards an education thing where I can help teach professional arborists and teach normal people, I guess, that aren't, you know, crazies doing tree things. Um, but any citizen who wants to learn about trees, anybody who is... Um, looking to get a little bit more knowledge, learn how to identify them, learn how they work, how they grow, how they die, things like that. That's uh, that's kind of what I do. And I, I try to spread the knowledge as much as possible and then add a little bit of whimsy to it to make sure that you can, if you're, if you're not paying attention, that's also okay. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. All amazing things. And it's really nice to have someone that's like passionate about it, but also able to spend your life kind of being saturated in it really. And you're living in a charmed area to be an arborist and to work in city forestry or urban yeah. forestry and it's good to have that perspective on the podcast i think it's really important to bring attention to the idea that it, like trees especially in the human environment don't always happen serendipitously you know there's a lot of yeah. thought and planning and and hopefully you know as we move into this future where we're at uh you know with society and climate and all that uh you know these are things that are going to be bigger conversations and and more part of like the overall thought process uh, is devoted to like making that a better opportunity for trees and people Oh man, I sure hope so. I specifically, I think there was a New York Times article that came out after this last big heat wave in June that we had here in <laughs> Portland or in the Pacific Northwest kind of at large. And they said, the best technology to solve climate change, trees. <laughs> Hell yeah. Like, we already know this. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, tell me something I don't know. But again, it's good right. for people that don't think about this stuff on a regular basis to hear that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think the more that you can say that and the more that you can like get the uh, the Teslas of the world, I guess it's not <laughs> technically Tesla, that's the company. Sure. But the Elon Musks of the world to instead of, you know, spending billions of dollars on trying to find new technology, just spend billions of dollars on like, you know, amending tree codes in all the cities <laughs> right. of the world. Right. <laughs> Yeah, when you start talking more and more to people that especially have sort of the more the planning side of things and, and really kind of bridge that gap between the natural world and the human world, not to say we aren't part of the natural world, but uh, yeah. you realize how many solutions come down to plants. You know, it's it's amazing. They're already out there and they're living and they're going to do their lives <laughs> the way they want to. It's just we have to facilitate it. Yeah, I actually I back in college, I, I took some landscape architecture courses and that was the big the big thing that really hit on. It struck me, I think, is that. All of a sudden, they were like, yeah, we could use plants in all of these different ways. Hmm. And that's when I first heard of the the bioswale or just ah. a stormwater planter where it's like the water goes off the road into and then they would be like a ditch and, you know, glorify <laughs> and say, well, I mean, it's a little bit more than a ditch. Yeah. It's a design, the ditch. But essentially, you do that, you plant a tree in it, and now you're, you're capturing stormwater, you're, you know, abating pollution, you're recharging the groundwater that's been paved over. So it's, yeah, it, it was just stunning to me, exactly like what you're saying, that the the amount of uses that we could just have, we already have the technology, it's sitting right there, it's growing out in the forest, just just bring it on in <laughs> here and water it every now and then. Yeah, and it makes our, our spaces look more beautiful as a result. But for you oh, personally, uh, was this always a love and an obsession with yours? Like, where did the interest in plants and especially trees uh, kind of get its start for you? Yeah, I, I know it, it definitely was a uh, a thing that happened, you know, I was always into it. And I know my grandpa years ago would always just get on my case about just being a tree lover. And this was when <laughs> I was just a kid. 
I just like to go out into the woods. They lived out on the coast right next to the national forest. Nice. So there was just trees all over the place. Um, but then I think it officially happened, I think, when I was in, in, in my freshman year at the University of Oregon. And there was this one course that they advertised in all of the, the freshman dorms. And it was trees across Oregon. Ooh. And I was like, what is that? What is this course about? So I, I signed up for it because I was interested imminently. And it turns out basically it was a natural history and a discussion of all the trees of Oregon, their, where they grow and how to identify them. And then some common trees around the, around the city of Eugene there. And that is really what struck a chord with me because I was like, what? Like the tree that was growing in the middle of my dorm, I was like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a laurel or something. And then it turns out it was a magnolia. And I only found out <laughs> later, I was like, oh wow, okay, I can tell the difference of these now. Nice. And for whatever reason, I just, I attached myself to tree identification and I could pick up on all the small little nuances about like, oh, this one's a little bit different than this one. And it was as if I, I just remembered it without hmm. even trying. And I know I certainly did try. I remember sure. I was taking a shower one time, just saying scientific names in my head while I was you know, <laughs> washing my hair. But yeah, that was really the first class that did it. And then I continued on through the landscape architecture department um, the next year and took a bunch of other tree identification courses. And but then they took it a little step further where instead of doing sort of the natural history of where trees grow in Oregon, they said, what trees from the world can grow here in Eugene? And how can we use those to create, you know, landscape architectural mm -hmm. things, you know, create a space, create a park, you know, create a, a vibe, create, a, you know, whatever it is, but using plants and not any hardscaping or any other larger sort of landscape architecture things. And that I really, that's what really struck me because they said, well, first, if you want to do this, you need to know how the plants work. You need to know how they grow. You need to know which ones do well where. We need to know what kind of soils you're dealing with. And then you need to know how to keep those trees alive and how they're going to interact, you know, as the future goes on. And it was absolutely just mind blowing to me hmm. because all of a sudden, you know, it was just like this little, these sticks that are sitting out there that you pass by every day. But then all of a sudden I was like, well, the actually, the reason that you're passed by this, the reason people are sitting here in this area is because of this tree. They're not sitting over there because there are no trees. And <laughs> it helped me sort of start to um, put plants at the center of how we design and how our our, our spaces work, you know, for right. whether it's something at large like a suburb or if it's something, you know, like a plaza and like, well, why do people sit in this plaza but not in that plaza? And, you know, why do people go to these shops more than they go to these shops? Mm. And it started just making all these these really intense questions that I was like, well, this is so fascinating. Also, these tree things are incredible. <laughs> I just was constantly stunned with, you know, how they grow, how they work. And then just how beautiful they are. I don't, I, I wish if there's one thing I could do, it would be just like, take my eyes and put them in somebody else's head <laughs> that I can like I bet you you get it but man I'm just I could stare at this tree for days and I mean literally days yeah. the same tree constantly totally totally and it's really nice to hear someone else articulate that in different ways because we all love plants for different well we the the people who like plants like them for different reasons yeah. but our introduction to them kind of is is just as serendipitous and as varied as why we continue to kind of be obsessed with this sort of stuff. And it sounds like yeah. sort of your path has already like completely arbitrary was going to happen. It just was kind <laughs> of a reiteration of what your life is anyway. And yeah. you just found a co-host who you can dump it all on every once in a while. 
I think that's the perfect way to describe it. He probably, if he hears this, is going to be like, yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. I just sit there and listen to Casey berate me about trees for an hour or two, and then we all go about our day. Yeah, and essentially, I was at the University of Oregon, and I transferred over to Oregon State after that to focus on forestry. I was doing a, hmm. a degree in theater at the time, and I was getting oh, wow. really grades in theater and really great grades on the tree courses they were no longer in my realm at all and i was like huh. casey you gotta make a switch here you can't do <laughs> Some, something's happening yeah something's happening yeah and then uh that's where it really kind of shot off because then it went from just a tree or some trees into an entire forest you know an ecosystem and that was really what sort of led me down the path that i kept moving down to uh, going to the University of Massachusetts and then focusing on conifers in the urban mm. area and focusing on how can we increase the the benefits and the services that every city is getting by their trees and how can we do that most efficiently. And so it went from this kind of novel, really fun idea to now I'm trying to actually make that happen as best as possible. So I feel like if there's anybody who uh, complains like, well, I don't, I don't really use my degree anymore. Yeah. Um, I feel like I, I do specifically like all the things that <laughs> we learned and taught them like, no, this is, I'm trying to put it into action right now. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, not to be too cynical about it, college and degree, but money well spent at least for uh, yeah. very rare <laughs> you hear that these days. <laughs> it is. It's, it's very rare. And I have to say, I, I feel very privileged that I was able to do that. You know, it took out quite a few loans. My mother sure. helped me so much. And that is so I the realities of school are so real. But I yeah, I think I am one of the privileged few who got to actually then go into business doing what it is right. that they they learned and what they love so i have to say i i i just yeah it's it's something i yeah i think privilege is the only word i can really well, say for that that's exciting and at least you're taking advantage of it in a way that benefits a lot uh and and what a great path to be on because you hear a lot about sort of the science side of things and the horticultural side of things and it's rare mm -hmm. you know the more you get into these fields you realize how rarely they kind of communicate as much as they desperately should and need to. And, yeah. you know, then you add sort of the human aspect of that, of like, we have a society that desperately needs to revamp and, and rethink of its approach to life. And uh, wow. you found a field that really combines all of those in a way that's uh, super beneficial. It feels like it, you know, that's, that's what helps me sleep at night. <laughs> when you, have, you know, gigantic, uh, you know, heat waves that come through. Ugh. But yeah, that is, that's, that's exactly right. And I think that's, you know, when I, when I think about like, what, what all could I do? How much could I be doing? I think that the, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head. We're trying to get these different groups to talk to each other and convince engineers that it's okay to have this thing that you can't control, you know, perfectly. It's going to just grow and do its own thing and try to convince, you know, anybody that this is a good idea and it's going to be fine and be able to actually communicate with them like, well, what what is the risk of a tree? How does that actually work? How do they grow? And when you you, you see that like sort of moment where everyone's like, "Oh, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. You're like, yeah, it's, it's really actually really not that bad. And they're like, all right, yeah, sounds good. I'll, I'll plant a tree. And it's, it's really satisfying just to make even one little, little, you know, push forward on that dial. Yeah. You realize there's a, a multitude of inroads you can possibly make. And a lot of times they have to kind of be baby steps, but those little successes can really drive a, a, a really important trajectory. 
Yeah, and it also it goes to show the uh, the disconnect that I think that people have have gotten now. And mm. I don't mean this in the sense of like, well, our modern generation is always <laughs> on their computer. It's like, oh, this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's more just that people. Uh, you're. I'm constantly stunned in in a, a not a, a great way um, about how little people know or understand about plants. Yeah. And just thinking, you know, 150 years ago where we had, you know, entire cultures that lived with plants for thousands and thousands of years and they knew them backwards and forwards. And and now it's just like, wow, within such a small amount of time, we've lost so much indigenous knowledge, but also just knowledge about plants that aren't even indigenous that we just, you know, like the, the disconnect between people and nature and the fear of it is really something that I think that's, that's what I want to bridge. I think the most is just get people to be, you know, comfortable and okay with not having that, you know, 100% control about everything. It's like that vine's going to grow. It's not going to ruin your world. Just <laughs> let it grow. Yeah. And let's see what happens, you know? Yeah, totally. And that's where, again, this educational component of it comes into play really hard too. And it's nice to, again, to have someone with the background that you have to be succeeding with a podcast that's about the conversations that you have that has you know, in-depth knowledge that people can use, but also enjoy. And the fact that they can chart, like we were talking about before we hit record, uh, it's just, it goes to show you that people aren't like against the idea of plants. They don't hate them. It's just, they need a better introduction than what you generally find out there. Yeah, exactly. Then, you know, your trees and plants for the small place. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I have a bunch of old books and I can like hear the like 1960s, you know, cigarette voice (laughs) announcer discussing like, here's what you should plant in your yard. Plants of a flower. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, yeah, I I really hope that that's that's the impact that I have. And I think you're exactly right. Like people want to know about this. And as soon as you open their eyes to it, as soon as you give them that sort of approachable thing, everyone's like, oh, wow, it's not as scary and intense as I thought. Like, that's really interesting. Yeah. And they're yeah, all doing yeah. amazing things. And it's it's so alien to what we really can sort of level with and sort of empathize with on sort of an animal level. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I think that that connection is there. I think it's innate. You just have to like reconnect it just a, just a little bit. And everyone's like, okay, yeah, this is cool. I'm so much calmer right now. It's like, yeah, it's because you're sitting under that tree. I didn't want to tell you. But that's yeah. the reason. <laughs> but in thinking about that, you know, we were kind of brainstorming some possible ideas, you know, someone like yourself and I can talk for days on end about you know different plants and trees and all that stuff and so narrowing down topics sometimes is more difficult but one thing that we kind of centered on was a particular species that you know is planted here i grew up with one in my yard uh they they plant them all over campus here and it's Mm -hmm. you know then you finally for someone an east coaster like me that goes out west and sees them where they evolved and where they belong uh, you realize the ones that are planted out here, Midwest and East Coast, are mere shadows of what they could be. And that is the wonderful and stupendous Douglas fir, right? Oh, what a spectacular tree. Yes. And I have to say, just just to you know, add a, a counter to that, is that okay. over here we have a bunch of Eastern species. And I you know, <laughs> went to school over in the East for a way or a while. And there's some trees over there that just when you plant them here, they just don't do near as oh, well. I think yeah. of the sycamore right off the top of my mm-hmm, head mm-hmm. where I have not seen a more grand American sycamore than on a, a, a river in Missouri hmm. and in the the town square of uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. Two of the, the best I've ever seen. And we plant them out here all the time. They just don't get near as good. So, you know, I think it goes both ways is what it I'm saying. It certainly does. And that's, again, kind of going back to your profession and, and what you're trying to do every day is making better choices for where we put these trees. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. 
but like, Douglas first. I mean, what do you remember a, a, the first time you really noticed a Douglas fire? I mean, I'm sure they were oh a backdrop god. to your life growing up, but like when you really realize, like, oh my god, these trees are amazing. You know, that's a good question. I don't think so. I think you're right. They've they've always just been that tree for me. <laughs> I I can tell you, I remember the tree that I first learned like to identify. They said this is a Douglas fir, and it was on the University of Oregon campus, and it was one of those moon trees. Have you heard of these? Mm, I don't think so. Uh, apparently, I I I don't remember the Apollo mission, but one of the astronauts took a bunch of seeds and took them up. Uh, Douglas fir and a couple other species. Oh. I looked up the list. I think it's on. It's it uh, without too much of a plug. It's on our website somewhere because we brought this up. I think <laughs> plug the other day. away. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it was. Uh, they basically just took seeds of different trees, took them up and around the moon, and then brought them back and then planted hmm. them at Arboreta and nice. universities and like you know spots like that. And they're called moon trees. <laughs> And so I don't know how, you know, special the trees themselves feel, but we put plaques on them. And uh, that was the very first one that I remember opening my eyes to say, this is a Douglas fir. Mm. And then slowly but surely going out into the forest, because that was, I mean, that was early college and I didn't really camp very much when I was younger. My mom just was not into it. So I had to latch on to friends and my cousins go do these things. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, I'll I'll take a hotel any day of the week. (laughs) Like, okay. Um, and so the then after that, I think probably the next one was uh, one of my favorite camping spots that my friends and I went to, and it was near Mount Hood. It had been logged multiple times, hmm. and there was one section where right next to this creek, so a lot of those trees had not been cut because you can't get X amount of distance to a, uh, a certain size creek. So we uh, we were walking around, and we found this massive big tree that, as you looked up, it was probably maybe eight or nine feet in diameter. And as you looked up, all the other hemlocks around it completely covered the top of it. So you had no idea how big the tree was. It <laughs> just went up into this like forest, you know. And you're like, I have no idea how big this tree is. Yeah. But I had to sit there and like look at the bark for. I don't know, probably 20 minutes to decide, I think this is a Douglas fir. And and then after that, I started learning like, wow, these trees get huge. And then I kind of started seeking them out, going to different national parks and wilderness areas. And then just realized, I think this is just one of my top favorite trees in the entire world. Yeah. And it it was, it's everywhere over here. I think it's the most common tree west of the the Cascades. One of the Hmm. most common east or west of the Rocky Mountains. And one of my professors said, if you are, in the on the west side of of the Cascades here in Oregon or in Washington for that matter, and you just point at a tree. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's a tree, point at it and call it a Douglas fir. You'll be right, probably somewhere <laughs> around seventy five percent of the time. <laughs> I was like, that's a really interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna say statistic, but I'm not sure, sure. If we can put it up to that level. I like that though. I mean, that's a good one, especially for you know people nervous about. Oh, I don't know if I'm right or not. Yeah, just go with that one, yeah. and you'll be good. Just, you'll be good. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Maybe it's an oak tree. Who cares? You just pointed another one. You got another seventy five percent chance. Right there, you go. And so, with such a broad range and and a highly adaptable tree at that, now mm-hmm. I know it is Pseudosuga menziesii, but I noticed like when you look up the tree lists on campus here. There's mm-hmm. some like variety mixed in, and I don't know if that's something through like selection and breeding, or just because geographical variants like this mountain range gets this sort of variety. Is it a pretty variable species depending on where you're at out west? Yeah, it really is, and that is kind of the curious thing about it is that <laughs> the Douglas fir can grow 
almost anywhere it pleases. And I know that there are, it's, it's similar in the instance of, uh, or in the way of a ponderosa pine where you can have, I think, I think there's like five different subfamilies of ponderosa oh, pine. Wow. And they're not subfamilies, I'm sorry, uh, subspecies or varieties. And there's at least two over here in Oregon for the Douglas fir. Okay. Um, and one is the coastal variety, which is and it essentially just grows up. It gets really huge. It's got kind of like the bluish green foliage. Um, but then as soon as you go over to the east, there's are, there are different varieties. They grow a little bit shorter. Their leaves are a little bit more yellow. They still have that same thick bark, but they just don't get near as big. Okay. And they're just uh, constantly, as you move further east, going to the Rockies, they kind of stay a little bit smaller, but still have like the Douglas fir. Everything is exactly the same, except maybe the leaves are smaller. They're a little bit different mm. color doesn't grow quite as large but then as you go down uh, i think well uh, just to southern california because i think then you switch over to the big cone douglas fir which okay. is pseudosuga macrocarpa i believe oh wow and yeah there's there are different species now talk about naming for this there's a japanese species of douglas fir that doesn't make any sense huh. to me yeah because over there it wouldn't be the a, a douglas fir our douglas fir is this one over here but so it's like, oh, this is the Japanese Douglas fir. Yeah, I, it just isn't it, to me. I'm like, we got to come up with a different name yeah. for that. That's you just got to call that whatever the whatever the Japanese have been calling it. Yeah, I know it's therein lies the issue with common names, right? And it's yeah. it's it's tough to get people that aren't you know in taxonomy or in the sciences to think about it in that context. But it makes communicating about this stuff kind of difficult when you're trying to pick and choose. Like, okay, where are we talking about in the world? But oh man, yeah. Regardless what you call it, um, I think the biggest thing is being able to kind of point at it and say I'm you know whether or not you're taking a big sweeping risk on just saying that's what <laughs> Douglas fir how do you know you're looking at one if it's not you know completely hidden by a canopy <laughs> yeah there you go well so the the easiest way is that it's a conifer so it's an evergreen conifer which everyone uh if you're not a super intense plant person you say oh it's a pine tree or something like <laughs> yeah. that and it is in the pine family it's actually the biggest pine family individual that exists Ooh, nice. it's the biggest of all the things in that entire family in terms Congratulations. of um size yeah i know i mean it, it earns it doesn't it yeah um so the leaves are singly born and they're the needle-like leaves they're kind of square in uh cross section so you can kind of roll them in your finger mm. and they are more or less spiraled down the the individual twigs so they have a very bottle brushy kind of um kind of look to them um but they're a little bit airy so you're not going to see them they're not really dense needles they kind of just are airy going down the okay. uh the stem they're not very sharp they're not going to hurt your hand they'll they'll bend and move so they're they're no spruce by any means i dig that um yeah right <laughs> everyone prefers a not spruce tree. <laughs> um, and it grows huge, especially here on the West Coast. Um, there are trees that are absolutely massive, massive in proportion from 13, 14 feet in diameter. Allegedly, the tallest tree that ever grew was a Douglas fir. Oh. And someone cut it down and then nah. they measured that I think it actually might have broke and then they cut it down and then they put the two pieces together and were like, this was the single largest tree anyone's ever measured. Damn. But then they cut it up and no one actually ever officially like, you know, said yes and like nah. gave you a really good thing. So it's still one of those things where it's like, well, we had the biggest one <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, sure, 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 whatever. Magnificent. Cut it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cut it up. It's perfect. Yeah. 
But yeah, so uh, the big thing to tell it apart is the cones. And this is the the Douglas fir specifically uh, over here in the West. They have these little cones, maybe about two inches long, and they have extended bracts that come off of each one of the cone scales. And those bracts look very, very similar to a rat's butt. <laughs> yes, I was That's hoping you'd thing. do that. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I guess technically be a mouse. Yeah. So the, the old saying is that there's a forest fire and Douglas the mouse was like, ah, I got to get it. In this, I got to find some cover. <laughs> so it jumped underneath the, the, the scales of this little uh, fur cone. And then if you really want to embellish it, usually the fur cone is like, quick, come in here. I'll protect you. So then the, the mouse jumped up into the, the cone scales and then uh, couldn't quite fit. So it's a little mouse butt, two <laughs> legs, and its tail are hanging out. And that's how you can tell the Douglas fir. So if you see a tree with that kind of cone hanging on it, or you see it covering the ground with this really thick, big, dark brown, dark gray furrowed bark, almost furrowed that you could stick your hand in mm. between the, uh, the ridges and climb up the tree, that is probably a Douglas fir. Nice. Yeah. Some really good uh, tells in the field that you don't have to like really stress over or pull yeah. out a hand lens to really pick out. Uh, and I, I got to say, there's a lot of great cones out there. Big cone fan over here, great. but Douglas fir is top three for me, for sure. And it's that, really? the little mouse butts. Yeah. I just, top three. Okay. because again, when, you know, you're learning plants, you're looking for anything you can grab onto to be like, yeah. I'm pretty confident about this. And like I said, they were planted out here and they get big enough to make cones. It was just one of those that I could grasp onto. I knew what I was looking at and that Easy. charming little story. It just, you know, it connected in my head and it's stuck with me ever since. So yeah, I got, I'll put them uh, in the top, top three. That's exactly, that's such, I love when I hear these stories because I, everyone has it. I definitely have it. One of my old uh, classmates, he learned the Scotch pine, which is Pinus sylvestris. And the way he remembered it is he always said to himself, Sylvester Stallone really loves his Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> that's how he, he put those two things together to remember the name. So all those little, whatever little, you know, mnemonic works yeah. to help you, you know, remember a tree or make a connection with it. Ah. Just makes my day. This is a shout out to uh, Sandy Geffner at University of Buffalo, but he used to say the 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 needles of Scotch pine are a little twisted, and when you drink Scotch, you get a little twisted. And I, I always thought that was like, ah, look, I'm trying perfect. to appeal to the youngins. Yeah, right. Exactly. You got to do it somehow. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. Um, but yeah, so the, the, you mentioned the bark too being really thick, and that brings up something that's you know unfortunately uh, something that's getting worse uh, out west. But thick bark and fire, I would assume, mm. go hand in hand. So do Douglas firs tend to grow or have evolved in areas that would have historically experienced some level of fire? Maybe not, you know complete landscape destroying fires but fire nonetheless yeah they definitely did and that is kind of that's the the, the real thing that is is fascinating about the douglas fir in my opinion is that not only has it grown and evolved to grow and adapted to almost every kind of situation you can imagine it does that through different forest succession mm. stages so it is the initial colonizer of a burned over area. It will just pop back in droves hmm. if there is a, um, a whatever kind of disturbance, whether that's logging or fire or a hurricane, you know, whatever it is. They'll come back in droves. They'll grow up. They're shade intolerant species. So they will grow up and live. Um, usually when you get those early successional trees, they would, you know, die off in some amount of time. These take 800 years sometimes. Ooh. Five to 800 year old is the, the kind of average range wow. for what these trees would be growing if we let them grow. Right yeah. now, we cut them at literally 1% of that. Jeez. 
I guess no, I'm sorry, 10% of that, 80, 50 to 80 yeah, years still, is the rotation. I mean, bummer. But, yeah, real big bummer. So these trees would live that long. And of course, you're going to have some fires that come through at that time. On the, the far western coast and the west side of the Cascades, they just generally don't have a lot of fire. It's really wet there most of the time. So when you do get a fire, it's generally one of those big ones that just kind of comes through and rages through the canopy. And um, They call it a catastrophic fire. Mm. Um, I would call it more like a... a I don't even want to say stand a regenerating fire. Maybe okay. that's the the okay. nice word for it, which I think is like the that's the PC term for a clear cut, a regenerative hard regenerative cutting. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, it, but in this case, um, on the west side, they they don't really like fire. They have really thick bark, and so oh. they're I they'll they'll probably live if it does come through. But the problem is over there on the on the west side. All the rest of the forest is combined, you know, with the mycelial networks and the amount of water that the soil holds. Okay. And as soon as a fire would come through that area and really affect all these trees, if it kills all the trees around it, you're probably going to kill this Douglas fir too, even though yeah. its bark is really thick. However, if you're on the east side, they're way more adapted to that and they hmm. grow just a little bit slower. They can still get pretty massive, um, but their bark is just as thick, but the spacing of the trees is such that the fires don't generally, at least historically, never got too intense. And so similar to Ponderosa pine, they just wouldn't have these really dense stands where you'd have these ladder fuels from the, the ferns and the grasses up to the shrubs, up to the small trees, up to the big trees. Okay. It would just be one small little kind of grass fire killing off any new little seedlings that are around that didn't make it quite big enough and it would just burn around the base of the trees wouldn't cause it much damage and then it would just move on through so they mm. most definitely do especially in the rockies as you go further south into california the douglas fir was growing with sicka spruce on the coast and so they didn't really deal with it and the redwoods but then inland they would grow with white fir and they grow with sugar pine they grow with um, incense cedar so you get a whole bunch of different trees and the tree itself the douglas fir just kind of has this gradient of adaptation hmm. as you move further east and further south where it just kind of says yeah i'm just gonna keep going and just grows a little bit slower a little bit thicker, not quite as tall. Um, but yet, unfortunately, though, when we plant them, that's where we're getting a lot of new forest fires that are coming through where huh. the density on the replanting of different logging areas is such that it maximizes the growth of the tree. But that is essentially putting the trees as close together as you can to get them to grow as tall as you can, as fast as you can, which means they're right next to each other so that they force themselves to grow up. So if you do that, then, of course, as soon as a fire comes through, they're just fingertip to fingertip and that fire can just go right through the canopy and destroy the entire the entire new forest or plantation i guess would be the proper term right right yeah that is such an important point to kind of drive home and i'm glad we kind of couched it in the ecology of the species is you know you hear a lot about wildfires nowadays in the news mm -hmm. and it's always pitched as something bad i mean even going back to smoky bear this is something yeah. we need to stop but fire is all about context on the landscape and even within a species range context matters so you know you move west they're a little mm -hmm. more susceptible you move east less susceptible and so you really have to always place it in the context of what is this ecosystem what are the species around it and how have we gotten involved and it's really good to hear and important for people to hear that you know, these would not be the case if this was a more natural forest, not a plantation. Um, you know, we're just really facilitating that in, in the production. And I realize we have to produce, right? Like, I mean, this is, it's part yeah. of the economy, whether you like it or not, 
it's it's part of this, but it's the practice of it needs to adapt given where we're going uh, ecologically uh, in, in in this world. That's yeah, that's exactly exactly right. And the way the way that it's it's kind of been uh, I've, I've been able to kind of you know put it in my brain because I I love working with wood. I find it to be such a delightful thing to mm. to build with, to construct with. I do uh, here in Portland. We have a lot of businesses that sell wood from houses that were deconstructed instead mm. of demolished, where they take it part board by board, they oh, just nice. resell that lumber. Yeah. So I, I really like working with wood. It's an important industry, especially in where we're at. However, it's hard to say that that's a forest. It's more of a farm. It's a plantation right. growing trees. And we could do that much better. We could farm a lot better. <laughs> we have yeah. we know how to make farming yeah. far less disastrous. So the the scheme would be that we could keep the forest that is, you know, a natural forest and let that grow, let that do what it does. We've already cut a huge amount of trees and uh, cut over land. And, okay, let's just keep that as the plantation. Let's use that for our harvest, but leave everything else the same and then kind of create these transition lands um, from the official forest, which is, you know, natural, don't mess with it, to the plantation forest, but then manage those in a way that if something happens in the natural forest, it's not going to destroy your harvest on your your plantation. We know how to do it. You know, there's different harvesting techniques, planting different species, growing things that are wider space, leaving, you know, tall trees to kind of shade and keep things, you know, moving around. So there's there there's so many different ways, but I think you're exactly right is that it's it's an important industry whether we like it or not. And now that we have learned so much about forest fire dynamics, like you were saying, even down in the Southeast, there's a huge amount of forest uh, fire adapted trees. The longleaf pine comes to mind where it has a grass stage and it doesn't even grow up to be a tree until, (laughs) until fire comes over and burns its head off. So it's just, you know, we know these things, yet we still just don't act on them because it economically doesn't make any sense. But the problem is it's all of the short-term economics. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're not looking, you know, we're not looking on the tree scale where the tree's like, no, 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 my economics are 500 years in the future. I'm just chilling. And we're like, no, 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 no. We're going to do this in 55 <laughs> years is what we're going to do. Right. So yeah, and and especially I think you're you also brought up a good point about having you know we did this stop fires you know and it's not to say that the indigenous people did not also start sure. fires especially in the valleys they totally. did all the time yeah but that's the thing is that all these other natural fires they were just like mm, getting out of the way and then you had these as as uh, settlers came over into the eastern side of the uh, of Oregon they were like wow is this is this a park this is beautiful they literally <laughs> called it a park because the ponderosa pines were spread such that it looked like you're walking through a beautiful well landscaped park but that's only because these tiny little fires came through every 5 right. 8 years and just kept everything really clean and you know we get rid of that it looks like a healthy forest but it's actually you know dog hair thick and then you know <laughs> that's when that's when all the adaptations are kind of thrown to the wind. Right, right. And it, it really kind of bends this debate and this argument and this sort of mindset that we've taken in the last few centuries, especially on this continent, of sort of you either have uh, on one side manage, hypermanage, we need to make this an economically viable continent. And on mm-hmm. the other side, you have the let nature take its course folk that just want us to stand back and say, no, we're not part of this at any cost. But I think the indigenous mm-hmm. practices that we're finally starting to recognize and understand uh, and, you know, kind of harken back to are, have taught us that like the human impact has always been 
I mean, for thousands of yeah. years on this continent, let's not lie. Like humans have had an impact. They've been managing this forest. It's a dynamic landscape that we can be a part of. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, there, there needs to, we need to find that middle ground quickly uh, now because yeah. you know, we've yeah. been ignoring it for way too long. Exactly. And I think you're 100% right noting that like we are still a part of it. It's not nature and us. We are, it's it's all one planet. And I, I, I hate to say that because I know it has like, you know, these, you know, one planet kind of ideas. No. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah, no, I get it. I'm sorry. Literally, like you have to admit it is just one planet, people. Right. And uh, yeah, it's like, no, we don't have to be all unified, but we at least have to admit, you know, that you are a part of your ecosystem. It's just simply impossible to take you out. And I think once we once we like take that into consideration, maybe that'll they'll start be getting a little bit of change. But one thing I just got reminded of, one of my old professors uh, at Oregon State doing forestry, he he was an old old hat log it. This is how the world mm. works. We have to make it happen. He tried to convince a class, and I was in this class, and I, I think I actually walked out and like got a coffee because I'm like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> He tried to convince us that if we did not manage our forests, if we did not cut trees and and log forests, that the Douglas fir would go extinct. And I think he said within like 200 years was something hmm. like what he was going for. And I, I see the look on your face right now. And that's exactly what I was like. How is that even possible? Right. Like, what's your logic? And his logic is that it's an early successional tree. It'll grow up and it will grow and get really big. And then at some point it will die. But the rest of the forest will be the later successional trees, your hemlocks and your noble firs and the like. And then you just won't have any new Douglas firs. And I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. So you're saying it's going to be a literal perfect world in (laughs) your model of forest succession for the, the rest of time if we don't with our, you know, uh, benevolent hearts uh, yes. cut all these big trees and that's the only way if we don't plant them they're not going to grow and I think I think I, I don't know if I actually said it to him because I really I have a hard time um, sitting in a class or sitting in a presentation and like just standing up and throwing huge shade at the right. person who's doing right. it. like I'm going to give you a little bit of respect but then I'm going to like at the end be like hey that was kind of you were way off you're getting some questions um, <laughs> yeah I was like so wait, so what happened before humans were here? Are you saying that that before humans existed, or at least existed in North America, right. that the Douglas fir was like on the verge of extinction? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if that's quite the case. So it was just, I, I think what that brought into sharp relief for me is the hubris of, of you know, people where we learn a little bit and now we think we know everything right and it's like no we have so much more to learn we we, don't, we can't even communicate with trees we don't even know yeah. what they're actually doing we just it can observe what they do and make inferences yeah but beyond that we're just trying to we're just as blind as anything yeah and i think it harkens to whether you are you know a spiritual person whatever that means or not most people are not thinking on deep, deep time frames. You either, you know, kind of assume the world is a lot younger than it actually is, or you just don't have the time or brain, you know, none of us really can fathom yeah. what a million years is, let alone hundreds. No, but you yeah. realize these species truly are something that's been going, you know, you look at like sort of the fossil record. It's at the very least ecosystems that we recognize have been around since the Eocene, which is what, like 30 some odd million years ago. So like, yeah, these are time frames that like humans really weren't even in the picture. So regardless of where you stand exactly. on that, but you know, I also hearing that and hearing 
hearing kind of what we talked about a little bit on the ecology of the species, there there might be sort of a kernel of truth in there in that mm-hmm. you've just described a really interesting conundrum that reminds me a little bit of what goes on with like, say, tulip trees out here in the East Coast is you have yeah. a pioneer species that's early successional, cannot germinate under a canopy, absolutely needs stand level disturbances to germinate grow and begin its life but then you couple that with the fact that these trees can live 800 years and could be potentially some of the tallest trees in the forest and you have a species that's yeah. both pioneer and sort of climax and you yeah. like, like the combination of those strategies to me are so ecologically fascinating because generally speaking species sort of fall out along that spectrum but mm-hmm. rarely do you get one that spans the whole gamut <laughs> yeah precisely and that it that's what is just stunning about this tree is that I was in the Olympic Peninsula this last year or this last weekend, and there are massive trees. They've been growing there. It had to have been for at least 400 years. And you're exactly right. It's like this is a this is the definition of an old growth forest. It's all around me. These things are massive. Yet then you have other massive trees that are shorter that are the late successional western hemlocks or something. And so yeah, it really it, it just kind of throws the uh, it, it throws a, a a weird you know, wrench into the whole idea of, you know, this is the succession. This is how it goes. A to B to C to D. And it's like, well, I guess. Yeah. But then there's these, you know, these long shots that just go through the whole thing. Right. It's, it's a curious idea, though, uh, with the, um, the the tiny kernel of truth. And I think that is, I think you're you're 100% right in that there's, if everything was perfect, then, you know, the odds are that there's likely going to be some stand level disturbance. So, so I guess a part of me is like hoping for that forest fire right. so you can get that regeneration. Right. I mean, again, I think what he lacks in, in that sort of mindset is the mm. idea that, uh, well, it's, it's massive hubris, right? <laughs> but also yeah. uh, this idea that like before humans, I mean, literally millions of years before humans came onto the scene, you know, it's not like disturbance wasn't happening. There were landslides, there were fires, lightning strikes, yeah. right? And and so exactly. you got to realize that like maybe they weren't as common at some point, but even then the idea of like a community and and how species move across the landscape like there is so much sort of like sweepstakes level to mm-hmm. ecology through time and you know you add glaciers and you add climate change over time like who knows right and, and we have yeah. pollen records we can find fossils but it's really luck of the draw and so to think of like we know exactly how this should be and how it's going yeah. to play out like that's the part where you're like okay dude we you're gonna we, we need to talk okay. yeah we gotta <laughs> we gotta sit you down right. have you ever heard of statistics yeah yeah exactly and yeah i really like the idea I think you just said a sweepstakes. Uh, there's there's a sweepstakes level to everything. I love that. That's such a good <laughs> that's such a good term to use. Like, well, you know, here's what we think, but we're just gonna throw everything into a hat and see what happens. Right. And and it was a book by E. C. Pailu or Pailu. I can't. I'm butchering her last name, but it's a fantastic book called After the Ice Age. And I think everyone needs After to read that Age. because it just goes to show you that this whole. I mean, and I know I realize most restorationists most ecologists are far beyond this mindset but there's no like as it was before and and you know growing Mm -hmm. up in the northeast where literally if you go eleven thousand years ago you were under a mile thick worth of ice you look at the species that have made it back some species that are still stuck in the south and Mm -hmm. you just realize that like what was it like in every interglacial it's not like communities move all together like all right everyone pick up and we're going to be an eastern forest up here it's like montana yeah every species (laughs) is doing its own thing and sometimes there's a lot of luck involved in that process but you know again goes back to kind of what we were talking about with the douglas fir and its variety is 
you know, we try to pigeonhole these things into nice little bins and taxonomy is really Mm -hmm. useful. It is an amazing tool to understand the relationship of life and understand like where we need to start thinking of conservation and even in the context of modern times. But, you know, to think that we when we evolved and when we got here and started thinking about this, like, boom evolution has hit a stopping point we can start to bin these species together like it i think douglas fir goes to show you that it's it's a dynamic process that's still ongoing yeah that's exactly right and i like i this has really been something i've been thinking a lot about as doing the show especially because we would sit down and research these trees and also i'm like wow there's a bunch of things i didn't even know about <laughs> and you know there's all these questions i think the ponderosa pine and the douglas for both were one of those species where it's like wow there's all these different varieties and then i was like well you know i think a variety is just a pre-species given another you know a couple million of millions of years right then there's going to be like oh no that's the eastern lodgepole pine this is the western lodgepole pine and i've i use mexico as a uh volcano of species because <laughs> right now like there's so many different you know i think in terms of species of pine tree mexico the country the whole country has more species than the united states does of just pine trees wow and that is when i read that i was like that's stunning to me and but a bunch of those interbreed all the time so i'm like uh-huh. well if that's if that's the case, then that must be that they are in the process of speciation right now. Right. And then given another couple millions of years, and then maybe that volcano gets a little higher, or maybe it gets drier so nothing can cross over this peak, then all of a sudden, boom, you have two different species that have been geologically separated or two different, one species geologically separated than it speciates. So I think you're exactly right. The The fact that we're like, okay, now we're aware of it, boom, it stopped. It's like, well, probably <laughs> not. And uh, yeah, it's it's hard to put things in box. The more I uh, the more I try to put nature into a box, the, the harder it gets for me, I think. Nah. But that's kind of the fun of it too, is you still get to have that sense of wonder and awe. It's not like science kind of yeah. neuters that ability for you you to to do like go out and enjoy and really feel a connection and and sort of a a dumbfoundedness like a healthy dumbfoundedness in the yeah. face of something you can never fully understand right i mean it's just so cool to go out and even just to see an old tree you know i mean a tree that can live for 800 years you go back a few thousand years and you're like that's many generations of humans but for that tree that's like three generations exactly yeah it's like that's they remember each other they were growing for hundreds of years with each other right right yeah that is that is stunning i really appreciate also uh uh, healthy dumbfoundedness that seems like i just want to make like bumper stickers of all these things yeah yeah that would be a that'd be a good one and kind of a head scratcher for the lay folk yeah right yeah Guys, he really smart or is he an idiot? I can't tell. I just don't know. Welcome to the club. <laughs> it's a good place to be. It is. So you were just in the Olympic Peninsula, though. And when you think about a tree like a Douglas fir that can live for many centuries, and then you go to a place like the Olympic Peninsula that has largely been intact, you know, mm-hmm. things live, things die, there's disturbances. But you think about this context of old growth forest and you start hearing trickles in the media, at least, that's finally starting to pay attention to the fact that, like, we are kind of ignoring the age of these things when we're going in and just clear cutting or even cutting a lot of this stuff without really any thought most of the time to what the consequences are and it's not just like oh my god it's an old tree it's sad which it is but it's also this context of like old growth ecosystems and the the species that comprise them are all just it's so vital to the existence of ecology of this planet of the health of the planet the biosphere and yeah. and I would guess out west, Douglas firs are a big component of that if they're living so many centuries. 
Yeah, they are one of the foundational species of of this whole idea. And if you just like take the time to consider like how long all these connections must take in order to solidify and actually become as complex as they are, there's there's no possible way in our lifetimes and in several of like you said, several human lifetimes for us to recreate this. We can manage forests and try to speed it along to get big trees and leave down woody stuff. But we can't make moss grow faster. We can't make you know a branch grow bigger more than one time a year. And those are the things that you you have in an old growth forest. And only with these gigantic old Douglas firs and Sitka spruce and western red cedar are you going to get these really complex ecosystems that are not only the entire forest, not only the entire peninsula, but every niche within that peninsula, and then every niche on the branch of the tree on that peninsula. And it's those little tiny things that I am constantly trying to bring to people's forefront. Like, hey, let's come come down here, put your face on this little bit of moss and let's count all the different plants that we see on this one down hmm. log that's been sitting here for 300 years. That is is what makes an old growth forest. And that's the the small little mycelial connections that go through and start to connect everything in a really intense way. That's really the the thing that I think people can't quite wrap their heads around. Like you said earlier, it's the it's the time aspect. We can imagine this forest, but we see it in situ rather than saying, okay, what did this look like over, you know, every five years for the last five hundred years? Yeah. And that is, I think there was one Western red cedar. Um, well, there's a whole grove of them, but it's, it's, you pull off on the side of the road and there's, it says, you know, big cedar in the, the peninsula in the national park. So my friend and I went out there to take a look at it and um, we're just looking up at this tree and I'm like, you know what? All the foliage that you see right now, like that you're looking up and like the first things that catch your eye, we're actually four completely different species of plants. Hmm. And you had to actually look really high up in the canopy on like a partially dead stem. That's where you saw the Western red cedar branches coming out, just, just barely hanging on because hmm. you know the trees have been battered by the, the ocean winds for years and decades and centuries. So there was just this little bit of tuft of living Western red cedar, but there were like two foot diameter Western hemlocks that were growing wow. from the stem of the tree uh, from the Western red <laughs> cedar uh, were, i think probably 12 feet up with these massive roots and it's like well that's all hemlock and then that is what i would call an old growth huckleberry and <laughs> if you just like well you can't just have these kinds of things develop over the time because you have to have the tree get big enough yeah then develop some weird thing then that weird thing needs to get big enough that enough moss and debris is going to land on it, decompose enough to become a soil, then have a bird land on it and drop that seed or have the seed flutter by, have that seed then germinate and then have all those things grow big enough to actually have a substantial amount of canopy space on right. the side of this other tree yeah. entirely. And that's the, that's the thing that I wish that um, the media would really like spend an hour or two just really discussing the complexity of this one tree. The redwoods are such a good example. The folks that initially did all those canopy analyses and basically said, well, actually, it turns out that there's a whole ecosystem up here. There's a salamander that does not come down to the ground. <laughs> I love that. Nobody knew this. Though, uh, you know? I know. And 
yeah, I, it's something that, you know, I'd read about for so long and could comprehend mm-hmm. as someone who was trained in ecology, you hear about this stuff, you, you can recognize the importance sure. of this, but until you see it, it in person, especially because I'm sorry, there's no amount of pictures that can do this justice. You just can't do it. Until yeah. you see it, you just don't comprehend the, the vastness, the sizes you're talking about and the complexity. And, you know, people will bemoan reductionism and I get it to an extent, but there's so much about reductionism that's useful because here you mm-hmm. have... You know, you could talk about species composition, and like I said, it's a sweepstakes. That can change, but when you really get down to it, it's about structure, and then you add the time component for said structure to develop. And when you just reduce it to those two things, you realize how irreplaceable within often multiple human lifetimes this sort of thing becomes because those large branches that can support trees that are probably bigger than most of the trees in my neighborhood (laughs) yeah (laughs) hundreds of feet into the canopy like you said you do not get those overnight you don't get those in 50 years and when they're lost they are essentially lost yeah it's it would be as if we are remembering what the forests were like in you know Spain when Columbus decided that he wanted to go west you know yeah it's like well we're no one remembers what those were like the whole place is completely different so it's like that's the time frame that we're working with is you know these trees were alive and I, I think I, we drove by one and you know they have signs pointing to like this is what happened and when it was on each ring and like tourists were like taking pictures next to this you know cut tree yeah. and I'm like we should be lamenting this this shouldn't be like look at me stand next to this big tree and I'm right like, ah, it's a, that's a tragedy that's a tragedy from 800 years like what was going on 800 years ago yeah and then like try to conceptualize that so yeah we're not going to get it back and that is i think that's one of the biggest things that i i think i need to start focusing on a little bit more is really trying to nail that home and try to just convince people we've got enough of the old growth down let's just leave the last five percent intact move on to the other stuff half the time we don't even have mills that can handle this size of wood that's kind of the surprising thing i talked to some guys years ago and they're like we don't want the old stuff it's got decay in the middle it's got cracks in it like the the wood itself is not useful until you get way up to the the higher reaches of the tree where it's been less battered for whatever reason where there's no Faolus schweinitzii, the um, a basal decay in Douglas mm. fir, it'll go up the tree for another you know 15 feet if wow. you just let it live for that long, and they're like, yeah, we don't even want that part of the tree. Also, we don't even have mills big enough to handle it. They want this the perfectly straight, farm grown, mm. you know, you know poles. So it's like, well, great, let's just do that then. Yeah, we do, got take those. plenty of that. <laughs> yeah, we can cut that down in 50 years and and yeah, we're not going to be stoked about it, but we'll be more stoked than if you cut right. down the ones that have been completely untouched. Yeah. But in thinking about sort of the agedness of these things, I mean, when you look at a Douglas fir, it's it might not be like Methuselah, the bristlecone pine that's thousands of years old, but 800 is still yeah. absurd. I mean, for a living thing, you know, as a forester, do you give much thought into like you know, you're thinking a lot about the anatomy of these trees, how they're growing, what shapes them over time, how their health develops over time. What allows a species to live that long? I mean, have you given much thought to like what mm. predisposes a tree like a Douglas fir to 800 potential years of existence? <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not not in a specific way, but I think in a broad way, I, I certainly have. And the biggest thing that I used to try to describe this was a, an article that I read, and I, I can't. I wish I could remember 
who wrote it. It was in Arborist News um, through the um, International Society of Arboriculture. And essentially what that author was saying is we have every tree, just like anything, has a budget, has a budget of energy, and it needs to use that budget and put it towards certain things. And he listed off, I think, reproduction, health, and defense. Those are like mm. three things that they used. And so he'd say, well, something like an alder tree would put most of its effort towards reproduction and growing fast. Like that's what it wants to do. It wants to get big, but it's not going to put a lot on defense because it doesn't really care if something eats its you know, leaves, they're going to drop and then come back. It doesn't really care if it dies because it's just going to sprout back or it's just going to you know, move on. It usually dies quickly anyway, <laughs> because of you know, water. Sure. Uh, next to a stream gets, you know, crushed by a flood. <laughs> but then he would say, well, then you have other trees that are so decay resistant that they will just keep on cooking for a really long time, but they're putting all of their efforts into defense. So mm. oak trees are one that a lot of people think of and walnuts where they don't grow especially fast, but they just won't decay. You just, you can nick them and they're just going to keep on growing. Mm. And, but they're not going to be the tallest and they're not going to have the most fruit all the time. So those trees are like, well, I'm going to put a lot into defense. I'm going to grow a little bit slower, but I will grow, a, do the rabbit rather, or the hare rather than, I'm sorry, the tortoise rather than the hare. <laughs> I get all my uh, analogies right here. Metaphors and <laughs> They're so folktales. complicated. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you essentially just take that different strategy and put your budget towards something else. Mm. So for the Douglas fir, it's a semi-decay resistant tree. It definitely gets decayed. It definitely has plenty of uh, fungal associates that associate with it. They interact in different ways. Right. And so as long as that tree can continue to grow and basically build efficiency, then I think that's that's really the key thing is efficiency which with its budget in terms of let's put just enough to decay resistance that we can keep putting as much as we need towards growth to outgrow the decay. So if mm. we can just keep it at bay, you know, it's like having someone talking to you and like, just, Hey, well, I just, I just have a, a quick question for you real quick decay as you're coming up. Um, I just want to know what's your, what's your favorite kind of needle? I'm just, I'm so curious. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have your builders, you know, putting on more wood behind you. So right. you're just constantly, you know, trying to waylay the decay. And, and then at the same time, it also puts out just enough towards reproduction that it's a super successful tree and mm. it can grow on almost any kind of, like we said, so you can grow on the Western slope, the Northern slope, the Southern slope, the Eastern slope. It can do just about anything except literally with its feet in water. It's one thing that Douglas firs do not really prefer, hmm. but if they just have enough of that, each one of those things is, is perfectly balanced. Then you put it in a place like the uh, Pacific Coast where it can just grow and has as much water as it can ever need coming off of the clouds, coming down in the rain. So the conditions now are perfect. Then all of a sudden you have the efficiency as well as the right budgeted things. Hmm. And then you add in unlimited resources. <laughs> and that's that's how I think they can live for wow. so long is they, they grow easily a foot to a year, not necessarily out, but certainly up in the right conditions. Wow. And they, so they can compete with the Sika spruce, which is one of the fastest, tallest growing trees, and the redwood, one of the fastest, tallest growing trees. And they can grow for ever as long as they also have those fungal connections because like i said they're not very shade tolerant so hmm. they need to have different connections if they're a small tree in order to continue to grow up through the canopy those fungal connections have to be there or else they just won't get enough energy 
So I think that that was that's probably the answer where they focused on on getting the right the right set of parameters dialed in. Whereas a lot of other trees, um, the Western red cedar, for instance, it's never going to be the tallest tree. It's never going to decay, but <laughs> it's it's just going to slowly, slowly grow in the understory. So it puts a lot of effort into keeping its leaves um, alive and it keeps a lot of effort to keep its tree stem physically right there. Um, but you're not going to see the Western red cedar competing in mm. dry places. They have to have the cushiest environment to really thrive. So they've, you know, pushed themselves over, you know, the greatest environment, but they're like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to cook down here in kind of the mid story level. And then you have other trees like ponderosa pine. They also have it dialed in in the same regard, but they've adapted themselves to growing in a much more dry environment where they're like, well, I just don't need to worry about competition. That's kind of <laughs> right. Yeah, I'll just let fire burn through everything else. At yeah. least it used to. So things are changing for the ponderosa pine. Ooh, poor buddies. But yeah, for, for, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 So the, uh, yeah. So I think that's probably what they, what wow. they do so well is they just have, they just have everything just about perfect where other things, another species, the, um, noble fir or the, uh, grand fir, they can do the same amount of growing. They can be just as tall for the first several years, but then they end up kind of topping out and they are so bad at decay resistance where if you do just let them grow and get huge and they become the dominant forest tree, all the Douglas fir die around them. You'll have noble firs and uh, Pacific silver firs growing. They're going to do great, but then just a little bit of something and their wood starts to decay, you know, super quickly. Hmm. Those trees will then uh, fall over and you'll have another Douglas fir start growing up right from underneath them. So, yeah, I think wow. that's just it. I think they're just the you know one of the most perfect trees. <laughs> I love it. No, I, I absolutely love that perspective you just brought to the table because it just goes to show you that it's not, you know, not all trees are the same. Not all trees are trying to do the same stuff. And, yeah. you know, there's a there's a spectrum of evolutionary strategies that can be evolved and, and organisms are just kind of sorting themselves out along that spectrum in areas where they can succeed. And that's what it comes down to. And and the thing that kind of was always popping up in my head as you were describing that is, you know, a Douglas fir, even if it's marginal investments in reproduction year in and year out, over 800 years, that individual only needs one seed to replace itself and two to do beyond what it ever started off as. And you have yeah. success. And that's the other amazing thing of like this just deep time perspective on trees is that it's like you said, the, the analogy is slow and steady wins the race for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's a perfect way to do it. It's like all it needs is those two. And then the tree is just, you know, yeah. as happy as it could ever want to done be. what I needed to do. Yeah. We precisely. Yeah. And that I, I think that's the fascinating thing is, is adding in that deep time where it's like, okay, if I just make one seed a year, I have 800 seeds or one <laughs> cone a year with 20, 30 seeds on it. Yeah. Then, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. So, yeah, and I think that goes to show, you know, how that budget ends up paying off at the end mm. for trees that take that that uh, that line where slowly but surely, you know, they're just going to keep on. You know, the bristlecone pines are the perfect example where they just like, we are just going to survive, <laughs> see what happens. And, yeah. You know, lo and behold, they're still crushing it. So yeah. it's like that budget, my God, that's gone towards nothing but decay. 4,500 years is a lot of opportunity <laughs> to replace yourself. So It sure is. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on there, buddies. You're going to do great. Yeah. We always got next year, they say in May. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just, I was writing a piece for uh, a collab and it was thinking of the bristlecone pine and you're like, imagine 
seeing the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and then the building of the pyramids, and then the birth of Christianity, and still being alive today. And you're like, you don't have to imagine it because there is organisms on this planet that live it. <laughs> that have done it. Single individual organism. Man, yeah. that's just so stunning to me. I'm yeah. just, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly, every time I think about that, like put it into perspective. I saw them earlier this year, the ah, bristlecones. Nice. Uh, yeah, back in, it was May, March. And it was just like, Every time I see him, again, it's like it's like you were saying with the Douglas fir. You can go see as many photos as you want, but you gotta go there to really experience it. And you know, it's it's like when you see something, you're like, I don't know why, but that's old. Like it's just it's, it's not huge. They're not massive, you know, incredible trees in terms of like a sequoia, but they're just like I don't know. I don't know why, but I can tell that that's an ancient thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a magical moment and perhaps another uh, chance to have you back on the pod. But thinking of this perspectives you're bringing to the table and the wonderful, eloquent way you spell these things out and talk about, you and your co-host have recently started, as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, your own podcast, Completely Arbitrary, that people can go and enjoy these types of conversations, these types of perspectives, and a chance for you to just bludgeon your co-host with tree love in the most fantastic (laughs) way possible. I'm not saying that in a bad way. Uh, No, he loves it. Tell us a little bit more about this podcast and how people can go and listen to it themselves. Sure. Well, let's see. So the show, like I said at the beginning, it's about trees and other related topics. So the entire scheme is that we try to bring something fascinating either about the tree or about something related to a tree. So we, we we initially start with the tree. Let's say the Douglas fir, for instance. We bring it up and we start explaining, well, here's what the tree is, here's how it grows, and here's what it's about. And then we transition to say, well, here's something that's interesting and fascinating about the Douglas fir, or here's how it interacts, or here's something you may have not known about, how squirrels interact with oak trees, or here's, did you know that this tree is so ancient that it actually is the state fossil of Oregon. You know, <laughs> we just try to add in all these different things. I guess that was the meta sequoia, the Still. Uh, John Redwood. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's like we found fossils of it here in Oregon, <laughs> yet it only exists in China. So, um, so we try to do that, but then we also bring in games and we try to have fun with taxonomy because it's such a, a non-approachable thing to where my friend Alex, he just basically is like, let's make fun of this and have, have as much of a silly time as possible. So he really brings um, the, uh, I guess the term that, that we initially used was the lay person or the tree agnostic. So mm. um, he's like, I don't know about trees. I'm still not convinced. So let's, let's talk about them. So yeah, we put out a show every single week and we come up with a new tree and we discuss it. And then the last bit that we do is we rate the tree and we give it a review. <laughs> and we basically say, all right, how, what's this tree out of 10 golden cones of honor? Let's give it a rating. Ooh. And we basically try and say, well, you know, okay, so this is a good tree. It's really good. It's really beautiful. It's got this and it's got this. But you know what? It smells like poop. And I hate that. <laughs> Five out of 10 golden cones of honor. <laughs> So we, we try to make sure that, you know, by the end of the day, you are understanding, we can talk about as serious a thing as we want, as, you know, important a thing, as, you know, fun, as awful, as whatever it is. But at the end of the day, this is essentially an Amazon comment period. And we're just going to go through and explain all the things we love and hate about this tree, give it a completely arbitrary name or arbitrary review, and then call it good, and, you know, play game. 
I love it. It's such a good idea, and it's such a refreshing approach to this sort of concept of just exploring your interests, having a passionate person that really knows a subject, try to distill it to someone that is, like you said, an agnostic, (laughs) non-antagonistic, important to put that distinction in there. But then, again, having fun with it, and that's what I think people really gravitate towards, and that's the success of podcasts like yours, is having fun with it, showing people that this is full of interesting nuggets of information that can lead you down multiple different rabbit holes. And you're going to walk away with something no matter where you're coming to the topic, but you're also going to laugh. And that to me is really important because there's enough boring lectures out there. There's enough like doom and gloom. Everything is bad. Mm -hmm. We're all terrible kind of stuff. And, and you, you guys are a nice refreshing break. And, and like I said at the beginning, the more people talking about plants, the more people kind of screaming the gospel of how amazing these organisms are, the better off we're going to be. I appreciate that so much. And I, I have to say that I'm more than thankful to be in in the, the realm of likes like you guys uh, Thank you. in defense of plants, or you specifically, I think, because the the amount of interesting things that I could talk about to <laughs> me come off as many times surface level. We just don't have the time to get into them. But then as soon as I imagine someone's like, I need more, I'm going to be like, go to in defense of plants. Look up this, <laughs> well, thanks. Look up this episode. <laughs> You guys really dive into the things that I, I I always see as the next level. It's like, well, you really want to know about that? This is this is where I, I go to. And it's like, well, tell me about the pitcher plant. What's interesting about that? Yeah. Well, it's an ecosystem, right? I mean, we're all kind of tackling different parts of it, finding our little niche and just exploiting it to the, the fullest potential. Example. Yeah. And so if people want to get it, uh, I'm sure it's available. It's it's podcast, right? Like you guys yeah. are probably available everywhere. But where do they find it? Uh, you know, do you have a website? Do you have social media? We do, yeah. So you can find us, our website, completelyarbitrary.com, and that's A-R-B-O-R-T-R-A-R-Y, arbortrary. And it's we had a lot of practice spelling that. I don't yeah. know if you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I was impressed. I was like, oh, no, yeah. this could go off the rails. <laughs> it's going to go. Oh, he's, oh, okay, he's back on. Okay, he's good. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And you can also, we're on Instagram at arbitrary pod at arbitrary pod. And you can also find me at clap for trees. If you want to follow my silly tree stuff. Yeah. It's, there's two P's in clap to be specific. (laughs) And, uh, but yeah, we also just opened a store up actually just two days ago. So if anyone wants to get some cool stickers or some shirts, we got that. Um, and I think, what are we, we're on, I think episode 29 right nice. now. So we're just, we're cooking through our, our summer 21 collection, uh, Ooh. taking a look at a lot of trees, um, focus on kind of natural trees and trees in the streets. Last, uh, last season we did a world tour where we tried to do Excellent. trees from different continents and kind of the, um, the culture that was behind them and how we see and use those trees today. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's great. So people have some bingeability there, but there's also plenty more over the horizon and they get to enjoy it. And I will save everyone the issue of trying to remember all the spellings there by adding links. But I'm glad you went through the, the pain of trying to spell those out. Ella. You know, yeah, it, I, I hope that one day it'll be a jingle where everyone's like, there you go. You got to get, you got to team up. There we go. Listeners that can make music. You got, you got some potential collabs in the works there. So yeah, send us an email, hit them up at arbitrarypod at gmail.com. Perfect. Well, there you go. Well, Casey, this has been an absolute pleasure. It's an honor to talk with you. I love what you guys are doing. Please keep it up. Please sing in the gospel of trees and so many different ways but uh thanks for talking to us about douglas first today i think this was a great conversation and uh really so important perspectives on an amazing tree and uh hey, we'll have, have you back for more i would love that we'd love to have you on the show as well and i'd we love like it as to well get you to uh what i'd really like to do is see if you would uh give me a rating of one to ten golden cones of honor of the <sighs> douglas fir what do you think 
I, ooh, yeah. Okay, so let's say, uh, let's do some like quick overview here. We've got yeah. a pioneer slash climax species that can handle disturbance. Does it um, all. Huge distribution. Uh, maybe doesn't do so well in the context of what we're doing with it, uh, but that's not any fault of its. Yeah, it's just doing amazing it's just cone. Right. I'm gonna say nine out of ten cones because like ten just nine seems like unnatural and un and unfair to just kind of be like it's the best. But I, I'm gonna give it <laughs> nine out of ten cones. I think that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of trees out there, so you gotta always make room for that one that one tree. It's like yes, this is the tree. Right, right, and that's like, excellent. Going back to the Amazon review analogy, it's like I don't look at the five stars. I laugh at the one stars. It's the middle ground where I'm kind of taking people ground. serious. Yeah, that's so. that's exactly it. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Nine out of ten golden cones of honor for the douglas fir it's perfect excellent thank you well thanks so much for having me on it's yeah just of course a, a pleasure a i'm glad we connected and uh, like i said open door policy so stay in touch hey sounds good you'll be hearing from us awesome all right casey thanks again and uh happy dendroizing hey thanks i always have a great time doing it you as well everybody listening cool cheers all right, that does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And thank you to Casey for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. Once again, he is the co-host of the Completely Arbitrary podcast. So if you enjoy trees and wonderful, accessible, and interesting conversations about all things trees, go check it out. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I could not be doing this without the support of my patrons over at patreon.com slash plants. So thank you to everyone that supports the show over there. If you want to make a difference for the show and make it possible to keep coming out each and every week, consider signing up. Also, you can pick up merch and stickers and a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants, an exploration into the wonder of plants. All of the links for those items can be found in the show notes for this episode and every other episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Otherwise, stay tuned. As always, there are so many great conversations just over the horizon. But until next week, get outside, stay healthy, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.